Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. So we're on week seven of a six-month study of Revelation. The fact that today is week seven is so significant And you're going to find out why that is in a little bit when we read the scripture. But I love how God just lines up the details every single series and every single week in ways that we could not humanly plan for. Now, for me personally, we've been a church for eight years, and this is, no bias, my favorite series to date. Um... When it first came out, I was a little bit like, ugh, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, That's a long time on one topic. But now that we have been diving in and going really deep and studying this, I don't know that six months is going to be enough. But in the months leading up to launching this series, the um, teaching team has been meeting. We've been study buddies. And... um, The thing that I've noticed the most in what God has done within our team of teachers and preachers is that he's united our hearts even further to how his voice is speaking. Now, I want to be clear. He's not made us alike. He's aligned our hearts in unity. So he's taken our strengths of one another and even some of our weaknesses, and he's helped build this incredible word that he's been wanting to say to us as a church And I was just reminded of it this week when I had multiple interactions with different people on the teaching team, where as I was studying the text that I was assigned to preach, I was like, man, I need to make sure my theology is right in this before I get up and preach to you all what I think the text means. And so I had conversations with my sister and with other ones of you. And at one point, I even called, I phoned a friend and I I said, Phil, Um, I know that you're an engineer at Caterpillar, and you're probably a big deal there, I don't know, but I need a minute. And so he he did, he just found this empty conference room, and we jumped on a FaceTime, and I said, here's how I'm interpreting this, Am, am I right? Is this accurate before I get up and preach this? And we had this whole conversation about it, and when I got off, I just thought, man, what God is doing here in this teaching team and in this church is so significant, and I believe that it's for such a time as this. And it's so important. And so I want us to never take it for granted. I don't want to get familiar with what God's spirit is doing here. I want to always be eyes open and ears open to see and hear what he's doing. So as I was preparing, I asked Jesus, I said, what do you want to speak today in this Revelation series? And I'll be honest, it was an interesting preparation because we recently moved about, I don't know, six or seven weeks ago. I think it was seven weeks ago now. Seven weeks ago, we moved, and um, leading up to that, I had a very specific pattern in which I would study, and I always started my study time in a private time with the Lord in the quiet of my closet, just like locked away. Nobody even knew I was there, and I would just hear from the Lord, and that is how I would start all of my study time. Well, now, God has called us to a season we didn't expect, and we are living quite literally in the basement of my sister and brother-in-law's home as we begin to build a home on the property that we purchased right next to them. So I don't have a walk-in closet. I I just have a basement, a basement that is where God met me. 
And so I had to really train my heart to hear from him in a new way and to not expect that he was going to speak the way he has in the past, but be ready for what he wants to do right now. And God was so faithful to show up and to speak. And this is what I heard him say. He said, tell them, do not be intimidated. He said, do not be intimidated by revelation. This is a message of victory. See, I think that many Christians have avoided the study of Revelation because they are intimidated by it. They're afraid of what the text holds and what it might mean for them, and so we've just been silent towards it. We've opened the rest of the book, but we've kept the final chapter closed for so much of our Christianity. And that has been out of fear. Intimidation is part of the spirit of fear, and we are going to reject that. So for many of you, this might be your very first time paying any attention to Revelation. You may have never read it, and that's okay. We're excited that this is an opportunity for you to build such an incredible foundation of truth from this book. This is a critical message, a message of victory. If you hear one thing today, I hope that you leave hearing the words, victory. In fact, Katie walked in today. She's serving in the toddler room, but she has a t-shirt on, and in huge letters, it just says, victory. I was like, I need that shirt. That is so good. So we must ingest this message of revelation as we prepare for the return of Christ because it is critical that we will know him. During my study, one thing that I read is that there is a biblical scholar who has spent his lifetime, his adult life, studying the gospel, specifically the gospel of Mark. And more recently, he began to study Revelation, and he said that if he had to choose one book of the Bible, he would choose it to be Revelation because of the wealth of knowledge that is in it, because it quite literally is the revealing of Jesus Christ. And he said, if only one book is what I was given, it would be Revelation. And so I'm so excited that our eyes and ears are being opened to the truth. The, the intimidation is gone. We have eyes to see and ears to hear. And we have, even more importantly, we have soft hearts to receive, to be able to, to be corrected and encouraged and to walk in the calling that he has over us. So whenever I preach, I try to point out to you some of the practical, um, obvious ways that God is aligning details from his word in our lives and um, what he's accomplishing in the spiritual realm. It almost always is shown in the physical realm. Even today, I was sitting talking to Kelsey, one of our worship leaders, and she was telling me a story, and I just laughed. I said, Kelsey, that, ver that line literally came out of my message from the Lord, and uh, literally what you just said is going to be spoken on stage. And she laughed. She's like, of course it is. But he is so detailed. So for me personally, this is how God was detailed about Revelation, and specifically this passage. So two and a half years ago, I began to study the Bible chronologically. Now, I've read the Bible in a year, like the whole Read a Bible in the Year program. I've done that a few times, um, but this time I decided I'm going to read it chronologically. And so I started to read it chronologically, and I just said, Jesus, I'm not going to rush this. I'm not going to read it according to what the calendar says I need to read in order to be done in a year. I'm going to just soak in this. And so some days I would literally read like two verses and just ask the Lord to show me what he wanted in that. And it has been so transforming in my own heart and in my own life. I have felt him do literal like brain surgery on me as he has renewed my mind as I've been in his word. But the crazy thing is that in the spring, I started the final book, which was Revelation. And it was two and a half years in. And that next 
the night before, the teaching team or the vision team rather had met to talk about what God wanted to tell us the final six months of 2023. And as we all shared the visions that God had given us and the words and the encouragement in the scriptures, we realized he was pointing us to teach on Revelation. Now that had not been a part of the plan necessarily. So going into that night, we had no idea. And yet the next morning, he lined it up that I would start the study of Revelation. And so that was just a way God was personally aligning in my own life what he was doing for me, but also what he wanted to do for his church body. God is so detailed. It's always so interesting. But the, the personal side of it for me is that that two and a half year study came on the heels of some really deep sadness and hurts in my own life some really hard things that I had to navigate and work through. And as I put myself in a position to hear from the Lord and to study his word, he used his word as a literal balm to heal wounds that were too deep for anyone else to heal. Only his word could have done that. And so this week, I just heard the Lord speak over you. And I love that we sang this song because I heard him say that the Father is bringing redemption to even the hardest places in your heart. And he said, everything you've lost, love is returning. Love is returning to you. Today's message focuses on Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. Now, this is a letter to the church in Sardis. It's the fifth of seven letters that were written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, And I want to read it in its entirety before we then go through and break it down. So Revelation 3, 1 through 6, this will be on the screen for you. It says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Okay, so there it is right there. God's details being aligned. Seven spirits, seven stars, week seven. Later, Jason's going to read Revelation 7. We've been reading through a chapter at a time out loud to you so that you hear the full truth. That was aligned for Jason to read chapter 7. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first and hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you do not wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Yet, there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. And so my prayer over us all week has been, Jesus, open our ears. Let us hear. Let us understand what you are saying to the churches, but to our church right now. Because these letters are not just for those churches thousands of years ago. They are for us right now. Okay, let's break this down a little bit. What does this all mean and how does it apply to us? Let's talk about Jesus first. I love that in these letters, Jesus um, reveals himself in a new way that is specific to that church. 
He says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, Phil mentioned last week, we have to learn to ask good questions of the text. We don't get to manipulate the text to fit what we want it to say. We have to ask, what does this mean for us? So why does Jesus identify himself as the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars? What does that mean to that church? The phrase is also used in the opening verses of Revelation. Let's look at that. Revelation 1-4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. So seven spirits, is that plural? No. Some translations actually say sevenfold spirit, sevenfold spirit. So are we being told that there are seven Holy Spirits? Have we been taught wrong all this time? No. This could be confusing if you have never studied this text. This does not mean seven literal spirits, seven literal gods. We believe at 214 that there is one God, Yahweh, the first and the last, the maker of the universe, that Jesus is his son and the spirit, his Holy Spirit is what lives within us. That is our belief here at this church. So the number seven in Revelation is that of completeness or perfection. So this imagery is of Jesus holding in his right hand the seven spirits of God, meaning the perfected spirit of God. So what did the seven stars mean? If that is the perfected spirit of God, what do the seven stars mean? Now, in previous weeks, we've learned that the reference to stars in Revelation is not referring to literal stars in the sky. You can go to week two of this series and listen for more information about this. But the seven stars actually refer to the seven angels that these messages were given to to take to the churches. Okay? Now, biblical scholars have debated this on and on and on. And um, there's all these different opinions of what this means. And I'm no scholar. I'm not a biblical scholar. I just love to read his word. But I do have the common sense that the Holy Spirit gives us. And so if the Bible tells me it is so, I believe it to be truth. So I'm going to read to you. Revelation 1.20 tells us what the seven stars are. It says, this is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars. You saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Right there, written very plain in the word of God. So we don't really need scholars to figure out what it means because God already told us what it means. So in Jesus' hand is the perfect spirit of God and also the seven angels of the churches and therefore the churches themselves, meaning God is holding his bride in his hand. We are not far from him. Now, this imagery of Jesus' right hand is so significant for us. You cannot miss this. Later, I'm going to tell you why the right hand of God is so significant, why the right hand of Jesus is so significant for your life on a personal level. But I want you to remember this. 
the right hand of Jesus. Why is this significant, and why is this text pointing it out to us? Now, this particular portion of Scripture is, was prophesied in Isaiah, and it's talking about the perfected Spirit of God coming through Jesus. So this is before Jesus ever even enters the scene as far as the people are aware. Isaiah 11, 1 through 2 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That prophecy is speaking of Jesus. And it's speaking of the spirit that will rest on him, that sevenfold spirit of God. That is what that imagery is telling us. Okay, let's talk about the church and the city of Sardis. So it is said that the population of Sardis was somewhere between 60,000 and 100,000 people. So not a small town, you know, it's like a pretty, pretty bumping little town there. Um, it was one of the most wealthy cities because it was on the trade route. And so very wealthy traders would bring their merchandise into the city of Sardis to have business. Now, I found it really interesting that this message, this message to Sardis, was actually the shortest message to all of the seven churches. And the reason I thought that was really interesting is because Sardis was the largest church of all seven churches. And I thought, surely the largest church equals the greatest success, right? Surely the largest church should receive the most words of encouragement from Jesus, right? And yet, Jesus gives them the shortest message. We've got to ask as we study, how does this apply to us today? What did the Christians in Sardis hear that we in Peoria need to hear? Are we making any of the mistakes that the church in Sardis made? Now, Jesus' message to Sardis, let's read it. Finishing verse 1, he said, I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Jesus calls them dead. They have the reputation in the city that they are an alive, profitable, successful church. And Jesus says, you're dead. It's interesting to note the church in Sardis was not what the unbelievers would have called dead. The other six churches also would not have called them dead. And it was because of their size. Because they were the largest of the seven churches in Asia Minor, it was assumed that they were healthy and a picture of success. And you know, today, most churches measure their success by their size. It's why most churches count attendance. It's why most churches post how many people attend their church, and it's a really important figure. It's a very important number for many pastors and leaders to know, because in most regions, large churches equal success. From day one at Church 214, Chris Taves looked at our pastoral team and he said, we will measure success 
by the presence of Jesus and the freedom that he brings. And at first I was like, okay, that's fine. And I didn't realize until we got further and further along and I would see people come and people go and people come and people go and numbers grow and dwindle and grow and dwindle, how important it would be that we not pin our success on the number of people in these chairs. Because success for us is on the presence of Jesus and the freedom that he brings, no matter who's in these chairs. So the church in Sardis, though, was very active, very involved in their city. All kinds of events taking place for every age category. Were you young? They had it for you. Were you old? They had it for you. In between? Collective. They were there for you. They had it all. The church was well organized. Now, I love to be well organized, so I was like, this doesn't seem like a bad thing. Their doctrine was sound. They had sacraments to celebrate regularly in order. They were a well-oiled megachurch. So successful. The church was the wealthiest of all seven churches, probably because the trade business was so healthy there in Sardis. So many wealthy people attended their church, and they gave generously wonderful things. So the tithe was robust, but they drew in lots of successful people that maybe weren't necessarily centered on the truth of who God was. They were very centered on their success. So by appearance, they shouted, we are successful. This is success. And yet the message from Jesus is, you are dead. You have a name. You have a reputation. The other churches think you're alive. The city thinks you're alive. You are dead. How can this be? How can they outpace every church in attendance, in giving, in activities, And this is the report written in the word of God about the church of Sardis. And Jesus is saying, I am not looking at your outward appearance. I know your deeds and I know your heart condition. So deeds and heart condition. This is what reveals the true nature of a believer of Jesus and their spirituality. Last week, Phil, you talked about the assault you've been receiving from the birds in your neighborhood. And um, we can pray over you afterwards if you need us to. That's fine. Um, But you may have heard the phrase, like, birds of a feather flock together. This might be helpful for you, Phil. I think it's important that we know that when the heart condition of a few are not in line with the word of God, they will draw like-minded feathers, like-minded flock. And so an entire congregation could be missing the mark because of a few bad believers drawing like-minded people. So is there any possible redemption for a church that is missing the mark? I want us to recall what Jesus referred to himself to the church of Sardis as the one who holds the seven stars, the one who holds the churches. In Revelation 1, John sees Jesus and he falls at his feet as if he is dead. Revelation 1, 17, John said, when I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as if I were dead, but he laid his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So Jesus held in his right hand the anointing for the church, even the one that was almost dead. John falls at his feet as if he's almost dead and Jesus lays his right hand on him. And he says, John, I have the anointing to bring you to life. I have the anointing of the seven churches and I'm placing it on you. John, it is your responsibility to take these messages to these seven churches because my right hand has the spirit of God, the perfected spirit for the anointing of the church. Jesus said to the church, you are dead, but in my hand is the anointing that you will come back to life. My one touch can bring this church to life again. My one touch can bring your life back to life again. I think some of you are sitting here and you believe that something significant in your life is dead, but you are not taking into account the power of the right hand of Jesus on your life. You are literally in his grip. His anointing for you to be brought back to life is right there. Verse two, he says, wake up. In other words, Jesus is getting in their face and he's holding their hands and he's saying, look me in the eye, open your eyes. You are not dead. Come alive. Jesus did this in the Gospels many times where people were like, this person is dead. And he would walk in the room and he would take them by the hand, his anointed right hand, and he would say, daughter, come alive. She's not dead. She's sleeping. Son, come alive. He is not dead. He is sleeping. And so he's saying, church, wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. For me personally, when someone brings a criticism to me or a critique, I am open to it, but I really prefer that they have example of how I need to change in my life. So if someone just makes this huge blanket statement about my life or my character, but they have no examples, I kind of feel like, I don't think you're my source of feedback. Because I grow through example. And so I wanted, like, Jesus, what are your examples to the church of Sardis that they are dead and they need to wake up? Like, show us what you mean. One commentary I read of the church of Sardis, he said this, they were the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. I thought it was interesting that unlike the other churches in Asia Minor, this church was the church that was not facing any persecution. I was like, is that because of their size and their success? Did they have the most wealthy people? Were they paying people off to not attack them and persecute them? But it was because they were silent. They had no persecution because they were silent. And Jesus' example is he's saying, you're dead because you are silent to sin. The church was silent to the injustice and the immorality of that city. So on the standards that were supposed to separate them from the world, the believers were silent. In particular, they had become silent 
to accommodate sexual immorality. The city was alive and vibrant. And usually the most successful sources of income in a city are the sources of sexual immorality. They bring in a lot of funding. So if you've got a church with a lot of funding coming in, you don't want to offend the sources that are bringing in funding. So when you begin to speak out about the sources of immorality and sexuality that are helping fund the church, that is a very sticky ground for a church leader. So the church was at an all-time high in attendance because they were silent on matters of sin. That's why Jesus says, your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. He said, I'm not looking at your attendance. I'm looking at your heart condition. And I'm, my ears hear nothing of your defense of my truth. How many of you know it would be so much easier to attend a church that turns a blind eye to your sin, that would turn a blind eye to my sin? It would be so much easier than to attend a church that is willing to lovingly and gracefully point out the error of our way and to say, you cannot afford to walk in this sin. You cannot afford to be silent on this matter of immorality. Jesus is saying to them, church, your silence shows me you are dead. The church was not facing persecution because they were not raising their voice. It was too innocuous to be worth persecuting. The enemy didn't even have to get involved because they were handling it themselves. I feel it would be far easier of a role in the city of Peoria if I were a pastor and if our leadership team were pastors that were silent on matters of sin. The people of this city would love me, but the savior of the world would deny me. When you are silent to sin, the people around you will love you. You will get celebrated and praised, but when it really matters, the savior of the world will deny you. We cannot afford to be silent on matters of sin. The church of Sardis had settled for comfortable and safe, and they were growing rapidly because of it. They appeared healthy, but they were spiritually dead. Verse 3, go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you do not wake up, I will come as suddenly and unexpectedly as a thief. So the church in Sardis had remained silent specifically on sexual sin and immorality. Now the believers of this church would have been very familiar with the songs that King David wrote in the Psalms. They would have had access to this information. And they would have known that King David fell to sexual sin and immorality. That King David had remained silent for a season in his life about what he had done, about the fact that he had murdered a man, the fact that he had taken that man's wife and committed sexual sin with her, and he was justifying it because it's what he wanted. And so he was silent on the matter. And it actually took a prophet of God, the prophet Nathan, coming to King David 
to point out his sin and to tell him, like, this is what will happen if you do not repent. Psalm 51. If you want to read the whole passage, it's so good. It's verses 1 through 12, but I'm going to read just a few here. King David cries out. He says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Now, I remember being a little girl and we attended a church that, if, I'm, if my memory is correct, we didn't even have a name. We called it the Faith Church. And um, I think it's, we, just, we just trusted God for everything, to a fault sometimes. Um, but there was this worship leader. And um, it's interesting, his son is sitting in our midst today. We called him Brother Bruce. And that's what we called one another, Sister Heathers, Brother Bruce, whatever. I was little. I was like five, four or five years old. And I remember him strumming and him singing the songs of this psalm. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me, but re restore to me the joy of my salvation. And as a little girl, I would sing that song. Jordan, do you remember that? You remember that? And I didn't realize until I was much later in life how important and how significant that psalm is because it's the, it's the gospel. It's the grace of Jesus extended. David is saying, I have sinned and I have fallen short of your glory. Do not cast me from your presence, O God. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Give me a clean heart. Such a powerful psalm. And the people would have known that David had fallen, but that David had been redeemed. So they would have had the promise and the hope that they too could repent and be redeemed. But I think so many of us live in sin and we justify it because we think, I'll deal with that later. Like, I've got time. I'm young. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have fun and do this thing. I'll, I'll deal with that sin later. But Jesus says, if we do not repent, if we do not turn, he will come like a thief in the night. And we will miss our opportunity for redemption and salvation and a, a turning. So in his message to Sardis, Jesus gives them five urgent commands before he begins to speak the victory over them. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains. Remember what you received, which is their salvation. Keep it, hold it tight. And now repent. If you're in Sardis in this church, so far you're feeling like it's all heavy. It's impossible to be restored and redeemed, but it ends in victory. The Spirit of God breathes life into them when he says in verse 4 and 5, there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And all who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. Now, some translations actually say never blot out your name from the book of life. 
And King David, in this passage we just read, he also used the verbiage. He said, God, blot out my sin. Now, the people in Sardis would have understood this context because in their culture, if you were caught in a criminal act, your name was literally blotted out of the civic role, of the public record. You would literally have your name removed from all of the role of that township which was a big deal because if you were a merchant and you were in the trade business, but all of a sudden you were caught in criminal activity, you would be cut off from being able to do any business within that region. You would lose your livelihood. Not only would you lose your reputation, you would lose your source of income. So if your name was blotted out because of criminal activity, you had nothing. So they knew how significant it was to have your name blotted out of public record. If anyone was condemned as being an enemy of the state, even if they were a public figure or leader, they would be blotted out of all that was history for that city and that region. Now, among the cities of the seven churches, there have been many inscriptions found in recent years on which the names of the emperors of those cities have been blotted out because they had become an enemy of the state. Their criminal activity cut them off from the ability to be grafted into that city's family. So culture and government handled crime by removing one's name from society. And so we have to ask the question, can our names be erased from God's kingdom? Can a believer lose their salvation? Now, this is a hot button topic for many Christians. There's all these opinions of, um, yes, you can lose your salvation. No, you cannot lose your salvation. Once you're saved, you're always saved. Um, eternal security, all of these phrases that debate whether or not a follower of Jesus can be a follower and then at some point no longer be a follower. Can our names be erased? Can they be blotted out? And I would suggest to you that we do not lose our salvation. We openly walk away from it. We do not lose it. We purposely leave it. See, because when we are living in active sin, we know it. We know that we're in sin. You don't even have to be solid in your faith to know when you're in the wrong. Your spirit testifies to it. It is our human nature to hide while we're doing actions of sin. And if you believe that is not true, you've never served in the toddler room. Because <laughs> when you serve in the toddler room and you give instructions that snack time is over, and a toddler goes to steal a little snack when your back is turned, they run and they immediately hide in the corner to eat their snack because they know they are wrong to disobey the voice of the authority about snack time. So we sneak and we hide and we do it in secret so that no one can see. But the problem is that because we're held in the mighty hand of God, he can see all that we do and there's nowhere to hide. We know that we are in disobedience when we're living in sin. So we can't use that like, well, I didn't know it was sin. It's like, no, no. 
No, we know when we're in sin. So Jesus is contrasting cultural's response to crime, your name is blotted out, and his own response, which is an offering of grace, an offering of, I will never erase your name, but you have an action, you have to turn, and you have to repent. Now I want you to hear my heart for a moment. I don't ever believe that um, Jesus uses our salvation as... um, like leverage against us. I believe that he's a God of love and a God of grace, but I think sometimes we err on the side of grace and therefore we are dismissive of sin in our own life and in the lives of others. But the problem is that our silence is ushering people to hell. And on our watch as believers, people are going to hell because we're too afraid to be unliked. We're too afraid that our city may not applaud us or love us or talk about us as one of the most successful churches. Christians, we have got to be willing to open our voices, open our mouths, not in a way that is condemning and hate-filled, in a way that is loving enough that we do not usher people into hell. I refuse to partner with a spirit of silence that is ushering people into the gates of hell. I would suggest that we need to heed his instructions in verse 3 where he says that he's calling us back to what we first believed. He said, go back to what you heard and believed at first. Just like King David. King David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation from when I first believed in you, God, before I got tangled up in the mess of sin. See, the joy of our salvation and our love for Jesus must be greater than our desire for sin. So Jesus says, hold to it firmly, your salvation. Repent and turn to me again. I love that he adds the word again because it's showing, it's, it's showing that you've already turned to him once. So you could be sitting in this seat and you can be living in the worst sin of your life and you are feeling so much condemnation right now because you're like, holy Spirit is talking to me right now, and I'm freaking out because I feel like I'm going to get called out in front of everybody. And Jesus says, no, I'm simply saying to you, repent and turn right now. I have grace for you. Turn again. So this is not about a checklist of sin that caused salvation to be removed from us and sin that's not that bad, so we're not in the balance. This is about heart condition. We have taught you about this for eight years heart condition. It's the heart of David. He says, God, I've messed up, but restore to me the joy. I'm going to repent and turn back to you. Cleanse me. Do not take your spirit from me. Rejoy to me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. That is repentance. That is the story of the gospel. Now, when Heather um, assigned to me to preach on this particular letter, she did not know that in 2018, I actually began to pray verses four and five over my own family. And so right here, right next to verses four and five, I have noted the names of my family. And I, I wrote, Lord, may this be said of Kip, of Crosley, of Wilder, of Collins, and of me. These next verses. It says, verse four, Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
All who are victorious will be clothed in white, and I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. This is a message of victory to the church of Sardis, and this is a message of victory to us. I am reminding each one of you that your name, if you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, has been written in the book of life. And no matter what you're walking through, you can repent today, right now, and you can turn back to him again. He's waiting for you. So church, may we be the ones who he says there is a few in Peoria who have not been silent to sin. There's a few who are going to be clothed in white. There's a few who will walk with me in victory. And those are the names that I have associated with the promise of victory. Those are the names that I will announce before my father and all of his angels. May that be said of you. See, victory because of Jesus is given to us at free will. We get to choose it. And we also get to choose to walk away from it. Last week, I felt the Spirit of God remind me of the notes he gave me for the vision team meeting in March. And at first, I thought, I wasn't sure why he wanted me to look up that content. And um, I actually reminded him, I said, oh, um, Father, in case you've forgotten, I used that last time I preached. I think it was last time or maybe two times ago. And I mentioned what you had said. And I just heard him say, repeat it. And so I believe this is for somebody today. These are the notes the Lord had given me as we were going in to trying to determine what he wanted to say in this season of the church. He said, I see an immediate turning again and again. People becoming like the character of Christ. I heard renewed and anew. I see Ephesians 2.10 stating that we are Christ's masterpiece that he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he has planned for us from long ago. It is all about the kingdom here on earth. It's about shifting the horizon of earth so that we can reflect that of heaven. Sin vanishing, righteousness revealed. Eternity isn't supposed to be out of sight, out of mind. Eternity should be at the forefront of our minds, influencing our every day. We do not neglect today because of the hope of Jesus' return. We influence today that we may be found faithful when he does return. We must live and think from a perspective of eternity. We must work the works of Jesus as long as there is today. Now, Heather preached a couple weeks ago, and she said that intimacy with Jesus is what satisfies our needs. And I think so often we think that our needs are only going to be fulfilled when we can pursue what our human desires want. But intimacy with Jesus is only satisfied from him. Our our intimacy requirements are only satisfied through Jesus. And I find it so awesome and encouraging that Jesus lined us up as a church in previous months to focus our biblical teaching on the intimacy we have with Jesus because he knew what was coming. He knew that he was getting ready to reveal himself in revelation to us, but he needed us to know intimacy with him first. And I think it's so interesting that we chose to, he had us 
speak on the senses that we have, the five senses that we have as human beings that we're able to receive through. And this passage closes with verse 6, speaking of our ears to hear, a sense that tunes our lives to hear the heart of the Father. Are your ears open? I think the reality for many Christians is that if Jesus' spirit was taken away from you, it would make little to no difference in your life because you're operating unaware and independent from him anyway. And then there are some who the removal of God's spirit would be total devastation because he's your everything. For some, your ears are closed to his, vo to his, his voice and therefore your voice is silent just like the church in Sardis. But for those of you that are alive in Jesus, he's showing his victory through you. And I believe that others around you are able to see the victory of Jesus and follow in your footsteps because of the promise of his word. Some of you today need to realize that it's your place to use your voice to speak truth. Jules, can you join me for one second up here? So Juliet is my niece, and she's an incredible, gifted creator. She creates original content, and she's got a small business, and she sells it. And her most recent content, can you turn around and show us your t-shirt, is this incredible t-shirt. It says, lose your voice for Jesus. And as I was preparing this message, I was actually wearing this t-shirt. And I thought, how interesting that here I am speaking on the fact that we have to find our voice for Jesus, but then I felt the Spirit say, no, you have to be, you cannot be afraid of losing your voice for Jesus. And I think when you created this, it was with the idea of like, sing so loud that you will literally lose your voice for Jesus, right? Kelsey, where's Kelsey? I can't see Kelsey, is she backstage maybe? There she is in the very back. Today, Kelsey sat here and she said, I'm literally losing my voice because of singing. And I said, oh girl, you have no idea how significant this is. You were supposed to lose your voice singing today. But Jules, I love that you created this t-shirt because it reminds me that yes, we shout and sing for Jesus, but sometimes our voice, it has to be loud in order to speak against truth and not be silent, right? Okay, you can sit down, thank you. Now, I wanna give a couple of these t-shirts away today to people that are like, you know what? I need to step up. I need to step out of fear of man and I need to be willing to use my voice for Jesus. This does not mean you're joining the worship team. There are, there are auditions for that. This means that in your spirit, man, you are going to rise up and no longer be silent towards sin. Okay? So I've got two shirts to give away. Who wants to say, like, I'm going to step up and no longer be silent to sin? Anybody in this church want to commit to losing your voice for Jesus? Okay. Come right on up here. Aiden? and Marv, two men of God who are willing to raise their voice, to lose their voice for Jesus. Aiden, that's your t-shirt. And Marv, this is your t-shirt. If these are not the right sizes for you, go see Juliet Taves, and she will exchange for the right size for you. But I want to commend you for being mighty men of God. 
And I could see so many of you were so eager to lose your voice for Jesus. So if you want to buy a t-shirt, you can go see Jules. She's got t-shirts for you to buy. Um, but I just thought that was such a cool, awesome creation, Jules. And it was it spoke to me on such a uh, significant level. Church, we cannot afford to be silent. We must refuse to be called a dead church due to our silent voices. I'm going to have Jason come up here. Jason's going to read to us our, our read aloud. It's read aloud day. Uh, we're going to read from Revelation 7. And the thing I love about Revelation 7 is it is a story of victory. It's all about victory. So Jesus has given us this reprimand, but he's ended in victory. And our reading for today is that of victory. So as you listen, some of you are going to know that you need to repent. Maybe for silence to sin. Maybe for participation in sin. And Jesus says it twice in this message. He says, wake up and repent. See, when I repent, he resurrects me. And when you repent, he resurrects you. This is a victory passage that he is speaking of. So Jason, will you read to us from Revelation 7? We good? All right. Revelation 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, and they were restraining the four winds so that no wind would blow on the land, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, who had the seal of the living God. He shouted out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage earth and sea, saying, Do not damage the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have marked the loving servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. And I discovered the number of those who were sealed. It was 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of Israel's people. 12,000 were sealed from the tribe of Judah. 12,000 were sealed from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 were sealed from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 were sealed from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 were sealed from the tribe of Nephtali. 12,000 were sealed from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 were sealed from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 were sealed from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 were sealed from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 were sealed from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 were sealed from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 were sealed from the tribe of Benjamin. After this, I looked, and behold, right in front of me, I saw a vast multitude of people, an enormous multitude so huge that no one could count, made up of victorious ones from every nation, tribe, people group, and language. They were all in glistening white robes, standing before the throne and before the Lamb with palm branches in their hands, and they shouted out with a passionate voice, Salvation belongs to our God, seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All of the angels were standing in a circle around the throne with the elders and the four living creatures, and they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, singing, Amen. Praise and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, honor, power and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these in glistening white robes, and where have they come from? I answered, My Lord, you must know. Then he said to me, They are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb and have emerged from the midst of the great pressure and ordeal. 
For this reason, they are before the throne of God, ministering to him as priests day and night within his cloud-filled sanctuary. And the enthroned one spreads over them his tabernacle shelter. Their souls will be completely satisfied and neither the sun nor any scorching heat will affect them. For the lamb at the center of the throne continuously shepherds them unto life, guiding them to the everlasting fountains of the water of life. And God will wipe from their eyes every last tear. Amen. Thank you, Jason. That is victory. That is the opportunity we have as the believers of Jesus is that we will be clothed in white that we will be washed by the blood of the Lamb. Now in a moment, we are going to sing a song of victory. We're going to repeat the song that we sang earlier, Revivals in the Air, because I believe that the revival of Jesus, the one that brings dead bones back to life, is in the air here. The one that opens our ears to hear his truth, the one that opens our eyes to see his truth, is in the air. And as we sing, I love that this is not a song of lament. This is a song of celebration and of victory. Because some of you are going to feel like you have to come up here and lament because of your sin. But I actually want you, if you need to come up front during our singing, to deal with anything. Whether it's silence, whether it's sexual sin, whether it's any type of sin, whether it's repenting for the first time or turning back again whether it's just to celebrate and dance, I want you to do it knowing that this is a time of victory in your life. That King Jesus says to you, turn back to me again. You will be before my throne and I will claim you before my father and all of his angels because I have the anointing in my right hand for the church. Let's pray. King Jesus, you are so faithful. You write the best stories and you give the, the greatest of grace. We can mess up again and again and again and you give us the opportunity to repent and to turn again to you. Jesus, I pray for every heart in this setting and every set of ears listening on the podcast that they would feel your presence ministering to them right now, that they would feel the healing of your right hand that holds them, that holds the anointing for the churches, for your bride. Jesus, I pray that your spirit would do what only you can accomplish in these next few minutes as we sing a song of celebration, as we claim revival is in the air. Dead things will come back to life. I pray against the spirit trying to convince people that their sin has separated them too far from God for them to turn. I pray in the name of Jesus that that spirit would be cut off and it would be cast from this place, that the presence of Jesus would just fill this place. We thank you that you send your ministering angels to your church just like you showed us in your word, that there are angels assigned to churches specific to what their needs are. There are angels assigned to you, specific to what your need is. And so I want you to respond in however you need to respond. And I don't want you to be afraid that you're going to have to tell somebody what you've done or speak out loud what you've done unless you need to. But I want you to meet with Jesus right now. And the most important thing I want you to do is I want you to be willing to turn again. 
that you would receive the joy of your salvation, that you would be on the lips of Jesus before his Father when you are dressed in white before the throne room of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.